Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future, a podcast of ideas covering everything from politics to philosophy from science to fiction, where the most interesting ideas come from, what they mean, and why they matter. This week, I'm talking to Helen Thompson about Dallas, the TV program, dominated the world in the 1970s and 1980s, but is about so much more than you might think. This is not about who shot JR. This is about oil, democracy, religion, and much else. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Listeners can subscribe to Europe's leading literary magazine for a special rate at lrb.me slash ppf. That's lrb.me slash ppf. Helen, I guess for people, I was trying to work it out, under the age of maybe 50, uh, Dallas isn't the thing that it was for us. So in our childhood, it was probably the biggest TV show in the world. And it was a huge cultural phenomenon. It cut across all sorts of things and everybody talked about it. How do you, how do you remember it? I've got two really outstanding memories of it in that respect. The first was the episode where it was revealed who shot JR. Because this went on for some months. There was a season that ended with the climax of JR getting shot. And then the next season didn't begin with a revelation about who did it. I can't remember how many episodes in it was. But what I remember really clearly was the, the show went out, I think, on a Friday night in the US. And it was going out then, at least, on a Saturday night in Britain. And there was just huge you know, buzz about the fact that the revelation of who shot JR was coming. And you couldn't Google and it. And you couldn't Google it. There was, no other, there was no other way. But for some reason, I was in the hairdressers that morning quite early. I remember I was, I don't know, I must have been 13, I think, when this happened. And someone in the hairdressers had been on the phone to a relative in the United States because they couldn't bear the weight any longer and told within a quite loud voice who did it. And I was really disappointed because I didn't actually want to know. And then I had to go home. And we were actually, my whole family was going to my grandparents to watch the episode. I mean, this was what a big deal that it was of appointment um, television. And I kept the secret for the rest of the day and I was quite pleased with myself and then I told them after it was finished and my grandmother was she was quite admiring about it and I really remember that but the other thing I really remember was a music lesson where we had this um, this was in Nottingham we had a music teacher and most of the things he got us to do nobody being a lot of people didn't like doing particularly the boys it must be said but one day he gave us all glockenspiel to share and he gave us Dallas music and the whole class just banged out Dallas on these glockenspiels and it was a music lesson that everybody enjoyed by far. It was completely different than any other thing that went on in that class. Yeah, because I was thinking about who shot JR, and I guess even for people who don't remember the show, they won't remember, it won't mean anything. J.R. Ewing was the lead character, and he got shot. I mean, if you compare it to what's happened recently and what's been all over the papers and always caveated with lots of plot spoiler alerts, but when a major character in Succession dies very unexpectedly, which has happened recently, it's had... A lot of coverage, a lot of discussion about it. It's not even on the same scale as Who Shot JR. There's so much more TV for a start. So Dallas, it was at a time where you didn't have a huge amount of choice as to what you watched. So when something took off, it really gripped everybody. Um, but as you say, it was drawn out. You know, these things, these, these TV moments now come and go. But Dallas captured everyone's attention year on year. And we're talking late 70s, early 80s. That was the sort of peak of it. But the other thing I remember about it, and I was thinking it's like some other American cultural imports of the time. So when I was a child, Dolly Parton was huge. But people kind of joked about it. In Britain, there was a kind of sneery attitude, sexist, sneery attitude. Dolly Parton was a kind of joke at the same time as everybody knew about her. Now, Dolly Parton is a kind of secular saint. 
But back then, if you were British, particularly about that kind of American culture, you you consumed it and you sneered about it. Barry Manilow was another. I think I now understand it was homophobic. I didn't understand it back then. You sneered at it. And Dallas was the same, that everyone watched it, but you, you weren't meant to take it too seriously. And there was a slight... Terry Wogan did a bit of this. He had the biggest radio show of the time. He talked about Dallas all the time, but you weren't meant to take it too seriously. So we're going to take it seriously, right? You think, and I think I agree with you, that it was a lot more serious than people gave it the credit for. Yeah, it, it came to us at the time as a soap opera. It was, in that sense, the first big serial soap opera. If you look at the early episodes, they're not quite like that because they're quite self-contained. The episodes, there's very little plot that runs over from one to the next. And presumably they didn't know how big it was going to be. With those TV shows, you did the first season and it possibly had to be self-contained. Well, not only that, there's no, I think, intention of JR becoming the kind of character that he is, which is the central protagonist in some sense, an anti-hero. Initially, it's more a Romeo and Juliet kind of love story uh, in which JR is not at all going to be the, the main character, I think. And, and and then it has a life of its own. And, and as the writers get to the point of turning JR into the character that he is, they also bring these much deeper themes around oil and its relationship to a lot else in Texas into play. So it's Romeo and Juliet partly because it's about star-crossed lovers from two different families. And I think most people who, who know the show remember it as the story of one family, the Ewing. So J.R. Ewing became an iconic figure all around the world. It's about a family, the Ewings. They live in a place called South Fork. It's a ranch, but they're in the oil business. That's basically what it's about. But the backstory is it's actually the tale of two families. And there is quite a backstory. So let's let's sort of try and disinter it. And then I want to talk about what it actually says about some of these deeper themes, including American politics, oil, all the rest, not so much the soapy stuff. So there are two families. There are the Ewings and the Barneses. Just tell us what the difference is between those two families. How do they come together in this story? Well, I think actually to see this, you have to actually add in the third family, which is the Southworths, who actually own the South Fork, the ranch. So the two principal older characters in the story are Jock, Jock Ewing, and Miss Ellie. And Jock Ewing is the founder of Ewing Oil, and Miss Ellie owns the ranch of South Fork, and her father was a man called Aaron Southworth. And the backstory is that Miss Ellie grew up on this ranch, and that when it gets to the 1930s, a terrible depression in the United States, the ranch hits crisis, complete crisis, and it's, it's going to go bankrupt. And there are literally dead cattle, you know, stranded over the over the land. But she, by this point, is going out with Jock Ewing, and he is rich, and he has made his money as a wildcatter. That means that he just basically finds land in Texas and drills for oil on it. And his partner in that enterprise is a character called Digger Barnes, who grew up with Miss Ellie, so he comes from a, a land family rather than initially coming from the oil side. But needless to say, the two men both fall for the same person. And whilst Digger Barnes is superb at sniffing out where oil is. He's Which is why he's called Digger, Digger, right? Digger Barnes. His real name is Willard Barnes. He's got no real idea about how to exploit that and make a business out of it. That's what Jock does. So they become business partners. But when Digger makes money from this, he gambles it and drinks it away. And at a certain point, Jock's had enough. And he basically sets up a well in which only he has the rights to, he and his heirs have the rights to. And him and Digger bitterly, bitterly fall out, both having both loved the same woman and also because now Digger has a narrative that Jock basically ripped him off. And that whilst Jock becomes extremely rich, Digger goes wandering around the United States as a wildcatter, finding more oil, getting more drunk, losing what money he earns. But then Jock's son and Digger's daughter fall in love and that's how the show begins with them coming back to South Fork having just got married. So these two rival families have to come together again. Digger has a son as well called Cliff Barnes that we'll come to in a sec. But to go back to that Great Depression story, 
in the backstory of Dallas, oil saves land, Absolutely. right? That's how it works. The, the depression hits, the ranching business is bust. These sort of pseudo or semi-aristocratic Texan families can't sustain themselves. It's oil that rescues them. And these wildcatters are, you know, these are rough guys, right? This is a completely different world. And the two worlds come together, but it's oil that rescues land. Absolutely. Is, is in, the backstory in this respect is, is that Miss Ellie doesn't actually really love Jock to begin with. She marries Jock to save the ranch. And then they actually do have a, a relatively, at least, um, loving um, marriage. But the idea is that her father carries on for a very long time hating oil men. And he has put a prohibition in his will that stops there ever being any further drilling for oil on South Fork because in the backstory, Jock has done a bit of drilling on that land, but the terms of the rescue effectively prohibit that ever happening again. So there's a really sort of ongoing theme through Dallas. It runs all the way, this I think runs all the way through the, the, the show, is that the land at South Fork is sacred. And if oil touches that, then something really destructive has happened. And that is a taboo that can't be crossed. And JR is constantly pushing against that taboo. And you pointed out to me, I'd never noticed it. People who remember the show will remember the credits. They were completely iconic. But you don't really think about what you're being shown. But actually, when you watch them, you see you get these repeating images and it's land, oil, land, oil, or land finance. It's a kind of story of these conflicting ways of life. So that world, that kind of wildcatting world in Texas, huge amounts of wealth, the discovery of oil, which changed America, changed the American economy. By the time we get to where Dallas starts, which is the late 1970s, if oil in the 1930s comes to rescue land, where are we by the 1970s? Because there's a whole new set of anxieties around oil and energy by then. I think that the crucial starting place for the story in this respect, so the story that's starting in the in the late 1970s, is that Jock Ewing has retired from Ewing Oil. He's still at moments of crisis, comes back and makes some decisions. But the company is basically being running, run by J.R. Ewing. And J.R. is a really quite different character than his father. So Jock is and the show is pretty explicit about this time, a symbol of the old Texas oil industry, the wildcatting spirit of the 1930s. And indeed, before that, when the first big Texan oil field was discovered, it was right at the beginning of the, the 20th century. And he has turned Ewing Oil into the biggest independent oil company in Dallas. And that means independent from the oil majors or the international oil companies, the successors of Standard Oil. Jock's concerns are always about Texas. And the most important thing for Jock, I think, is that Ewing Oil is part of the Texas oil cartel. JR is trying to play on a bigger stage than that, but he's having to play on a bigger stage because the oil world in which Jock had made Ewing Oil, the kind of company in which it was, is over by the 1970s. American oil production had peaked, this is before the shale boom, in 1970. The US is on a path, in fact it probably is by the time the, the show starts, the largest oil importer in the world. And JR is having to deal with finding oil abroad or exploiting oil abroad as much as he is what's actually going on with the Texas oil fields. And that leads him into many more overtly Machiavellian ways in running the oil company than Jock has done. Now, I think that part of the show is saying that the idea of Jock, the ideal of Jock as representing old oil Texas is romanticised and JR has a very keen sense of that. But there's still a tension between the way in which it was possible for Ewing Oil to be in the era of wildcatting and the way in which it's possible for Ewing Oil to be in an era in which the United States has to import oil from abroad. And the 1970s, and we'll talk a bit more about this, they were the great age of oil anxiety. I mean, there have been periods since then as well. Um, and there was another cartel that dominated 
the world and the world economy, which was OPEC. And, there, and it is fascinating, the show, because the Texas cartel is really crucial to this. And the point of the cartel is that you can't be fully independent. You can't decide how much oil you're going to take out of the land because prices are being set. And at various points, JR tries to buck the cartel and sort of present himself as the friend of the common man by pumping more oil and making it cheaper. And this is going on on the global stage at the same time. And then there's that deep anxiety in American politics that's captured by Jimmy Carter's famous Malay speech. That something about the 1970s and particularly American oil dependency has kind of sapped the spirit of the country. Um, and that's, so that spirit is kind of jock, right? And then JR represents all of the appalling things that people have to do to try and get back in the game. Yeah. And I think that what's interesting about just on the jock side of that is that jock's story actually ends in that JR's world too, because the final end of Jock, even though it's made necessary by the death of the actor, is that the American government sends him off to the Venezuelan jungle to try to find oil because they're so worried about American oil supply. And when they finally find, they never find Jock's body, but they find his medallion. And JR stands there in the jungle and basically says, it can't end in a stinking hole like this. As if you know, that is the end of the Texas story. In the Venezuelan jungle. In the Venezuelan jungle in a, heli- in a helicopter crash where Jock's body can't be found. And after Jock's death, he still completely looms over the whole of the, the show. That's partly because they put a portrait of him up. But they have endless stories, really, post-Jock's death that are about whether the sons can live up to Jock's spirit or not and whether, in fact, Ewing Oil has to die, should have died with Jock. On the JR side of it, he gets into the international oil business in the sense that he is trying to find oil wells to invest in abroad, but he becomes increasingly out of his depth playing that game. And then by the middle of the 1980s, and I think what is really the last part of the the watchable part of Dallas, his machinations abroad actually bring about the destruction of the, the company in an episode that's called The Fall of the House of Ewing. So we want to talk about one episode in particular, which has a lot of these themes all tied up in it. But before I get to that, it is also worth saying, and I'm indebted to you for pointing this out to me. So my childhood memories of it are Who Shot JR? There's a lot of sort of sexual shenanigans as well, paternity suits and this and that. Everyone is sleeping with everyone else. And that's what people tend to remember about Dallas. But all these other things are going on at the same time too. And watching them now, they seem weirdly prescient in some ways and there are these reference points that you don't expect there is talk about shale isn't there Um, there's a lot of talk about the environmental movement and the pressure that the oil industry is under or maybe going to be under from elected representatives or others or campaigning groups that are deeply worried about what this kind of energy economy is doing to the environment this is this is the late 70s early 80s but some of it feels quite now. It isn't. And obviously, one of the interesting um, bits of the environmental politics of it, it isn't actually just about the land versus oil. It's also about the way in which JR running an oil company is manipulating the environmental politics in the show, in the sense that uh, he is actually funding a candidate, Cliff Barnes, to run for office as an anti-oil, anti-nuclear power candidate. So... Th- this is episode 12, I think, in series three. Am I right about that? I think it, yeah, it's somewhere in the middle of episode season three, yeah. And also, I, I think one thing that a lot of people remember about Dallas who watched it is that as it fell apart, one of the plot devices they used was you discovered things were a dream when they couldn't work out what to do with characters or characters left the show and came back. So it gets very, very messy and chaotic. This is pre-dream, Dallas. This is where... It's a long way before the dream. Th- there's a kind of narrative sequence and the writers know what they're doing and it makes sense. So in this one show, in a way, you get the a microcosm of the whole thing and what Dallas is trying to say about not just oil, but kind of the way that America runs. And this episode is about JR's overseas machinations. He's exploring East Asian Southeast oil, Asian. Southeast Asian oil fields uh, because in his sense of what's possible now, he knows he's got to expand outside of the United States. But to do that, he's mortgaged his mother's farm, his mother's ranch, to the banks. And there's a very tight time frame. They've got like a week to strike oil or the banks are going to come and uh, take the land back. 
you've got that going on in this episode. And you, then you've also got the thing that you just described, which is Cliff Barnes, who's the, the son of, the, of Digger Barnes, the rival family, and in some ways represents not just anti-Ewing, but anti-oil. So he, at this point, has this incredibly powerful office in Texas, which is on the board of land management. He gets to decide where people can drill, basically. I mean, the reason why JR is having to go to Southeast Asia is, is because Cliff Barnes has stopped doing oil, doing LE drilling in Texas. I mean, there is a kind of, obviously, a politics to that. If you look at the big picture of American oil at the time, is the Texas oil fields are dry for Ewing oil at that point because of what Cliff Barnes is doing in politics. And that is what sends JR abroad in the first place. Uh, because if he, if it weren't for Cliff Barnes, he wouldn't need these Southeast Asian oil wells. And Cliff Barnes has this office, which is an administrative office. So this is a branch of the executive. I don't want to make this too kind of pretentious, but there is a story here about the executive versus the legislature in American politics. This part of the administrative state is where the real power is. The governor gets to pick who occupies this office. And basically, you know, the fate of an oil company can depend on whether you're a friend or a foe of the person who has this incredibly powerful role. So to subvert it, and I love the irony of this, to subvert it, JR, without Cliff being aware of it, persuades him to run for office, like real democratic office, where he thinks the real power is. But of course, JR knows that's not where the real power is, right? You can you can grandstand in Congress, but the real power is with the person who signs off on you know, the oil leases. So you've got a kind of four-way struggle here. You've got JR, who represents oil, and we're going to come on to this. You've got his mother, who represents land. You've got Cliff, who represents the state, but it's the administrative state that JR subverts by kind of you know, doing grandstanding. And then you've got what I was really struck by in this, the real power brokers... And this is a glimpse of the future. This is what happens when American oil has to go overseas, because how do you fund that? You have to get massively in debt to the banks. And actually, you know, this is the Texan version of Wall Street. The banks are the one institution that JR can't control. No, absolutely. And uh, JR is able to manipulate a great deal. And in a, in a future episode, he will actually land the problem of the, the Southeast Asian oil leases onto an unsuspecting cartel because he gets word that a coup is happening. So he is at this point quite capable of manipulating a lot successfully. And that diminishes as the story goes on, which I think is quite important to the story that Dallas was ultimately telling in this respect. But the one thing that JR can't do in this episode is influence what the banks decide. And crucially, neither can Jock. He does slightly better than JR when he goes in to try to rescue the situation. But even Jock, who's supposed to represent you know, this old Texas oil industry, rugged integrity in some sense, even though that's a myth, they think absolutely nothing of saying no to him and that they he, that, that Ewing Oil will have to make interest payments that it can't without these oil revenues. And it's interesting that so Jock is the kind of good old boy world and everything that that connotes, you know, presumably quite a lot of racism and other things too, the oil barons and the, the cartel. These are old white men carving up a part of the Texan economy. But it is a world that depends on personal relationships. It's all about personal relationships. Who do you know? Who are you friends with? Who can you manipulate? And the sort of administrative state bit is still part of that world. There's a bit in the episode where JR discovers that he's persuaded Cliff to run for office, you know, without Cliff, poor old Cliff, without Cliff being aware. And then the question is, who's the governor going to put in? And it's good news. It's a friend, not a foe. But the banks, which they think they can manipulate in the same way, like, call them in. Remember, we're Ewing's. Like, don't you remember us? And you get this glimpse, I think, of a future in which when Wall Street is calling the shots, of course, personal relationships still count. But that world has gone. I think that what's really important here is the fact that the Ewings, even Jock, face both ways with land and oil. And that what Jock has done as the years have gone by in the backstory has got closer to land. So in the episodes when Jock is in it, you see him as much on the land as you do in the office. And what distinguishes the Ewings from the other oil barons in town, the other independent oil barrels in time, is they live miles and miles out of Dallas on this ranch land. The bankers and the other members of the cartel are much more urban characters. 
than the Ewings. JR is an exception, but he's constantly, I think, being presented as isolated within Southport for that reason. So the combined power of old land plus wildcatting oil just doesn't cut it with finance. And what's really interesting later on in the the last season that I think is is watchable, which is the recovering from the dream season, is the banks play a really important role in that, in the destruction of Ewing oil. So all the problems that JR gets into when he basically brings about Ewing oil's destruction start with the fact that the banks will no longer lend to Ewing oil. And in this episode that we're talking about, I think it's called Miss Ellie Saves the Day, in the end, the only way that they can get round the hole that the banks have on them, because JR has mortgaged the family's wealth and the oil's not coming through, is that his mother has to agree to allow the land, which is precious to her, it's almost kind of sacred to her, it the is ranch, sacred, yeah. um, to allow the land to be drilled for oil. The one thing that would never happen, the two worlds were kept apart because you don't drill on South Fork. And to keep Wall Street or the bankers at bay, Miss Ellie finally agrees to her deep distress. And you know, she says she'll never forgive JR, but people are always saying that to JR. Um, she agrees to let the land be used for oil, her land, her family land. She does, but in the very next episode, you actually see the beginning of you know, the preparation for, for drilling on the land, and she gets so upset at the sight of it that Jock has to find another solution. So the drilling doesn't actually happen because I think that once the show has done that, then in some sense the Ewing story is over. I think, though, what is really significant in the post-Jock death narrative is the way in which South Fork is saved, essentially because those South Asian yeah, it oil does wells come through, uh, it? finally um, come to through. Though nobody wants to give any gratitude um, to JR for that. So South Fork is saved and you don't have to break that taboo about the drilling for oil on um, South Fork. But the competition that Jock sets up in his will between JR and his younger brother Bobby for who is going to control Ewing Oil culminates with South Fork going up in flames. So ultimately you can't resolve this conflict. You can't resolve the conflict. No. And and you know the, there are the star-crossed lovers, Bobby marries Pam, and that's the sort of and that part was... of the soapy narrative. But there's this other ongoing thing, you have to hold the two families apart. But also on that, the Romeo and Juliet aspect of Bobby and his his wife of Digger's um, daughter, that marriage is also destroyed by this competition for Ewing Oil. So is it a tragedy? I think it is a tragedy. I think that, that in the end, the core characters, Miss Ellie and Jock and their two sons, there is a, a third prodigal son as well who's seen as being unfit to be around Jock because he loves the land too much and won't engage with oil. And the wives of the sons, they're all destroyed. There's no, no, nobody, nobody survives Ewing Oil, really. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. So one thing, unless I've missed it, that there isn't much of in Dallas, but is presumably integral to the real story of Texan oil and Texan politics, and certainly if you 
play this forward to now, and we'll talk about that a bit in a second, is religion. Mm. That it's not, unless I've missed it, yeah. you, you know the show better than me, but in, in the real version of that story, particularly evangelical Christianity, is is really sort of wrapped into the politics and the economics of this, and it still is now. I mean, you can't understand text and politics without religion. Where is it in Dallas? Nowhere. When I started watching some of it again, uh, having read um, a book called Anointed with Oil, which is extraordinarily interesting on, on the history of Texas and oil, it struck me almost immediately that what was missing was religion. Because in practice, those either wildcatting companies or ones that speculators took over and turned into these independent oil companies in Texas were very much the characters around those companies were very much into evangelical religion and the influence. I mean, they played an enormous part in the influence of evangelical Christianity on American politics from the 1970s onwards. I think there's a, a couple of references maybe of Miss Ellie or Sue Ellen, Gerald's wife, going to church, but there's never a story that's run around this question. And in some sense, it's the... It's the missing piece if you want to turn it into a story of all the different forces in Texas that are going on. And that's in contrast to, say, an earlier oil fiction, Upton Sinclair's Oil, which was the basis for the film that people might remember, There Will Be Blood, which is you know, an incredible film about the earlier period, so early 20th century oil speculating and the ruthlessness of it. But it's also about these huge forces at work. And it's kind of a struggle between religion, one sense, because Paul Dano plays a, a kind of preacher and Daniel Day-Lewis plays a, a wildcatter. And religion is right at the heart of this. It was also originally a Marxist novel that I think in the film is turned into a kind of Nietzschean struggle between two different versions of the will to power. It's, it's in a completely different register from Dallas. In some ways, Dallas to me is more pragmatically political, so it doesn't have that big religious backstory. But it's really intricately interesting about how you know, the manipulation around something like oil in Texas in the 1970s took place, the different things that had to be lined up. So you don't have the big, apart from Miss Ellie's worship of the land, you don't have the big spiritual stuff. But you do have an incredibly detailed account of everything that went into oil politics. I think that what's interesting about Dallas is, is that the writers deliberately picked up on some older stories, starting with Upton Sinclair's novel, Oil, although that is the oil fields there are in California, not um, in Texas. But if you look at the novel that Sinclair wrote, as opposed to what was done with it in There Will Be Blood, there's very much politics at the national level in that novel because the principal oil owner is involved in the teapot dome scandal that um, really damaged Warren Harding's presidency when he handed out leases on land that had been naval oil reserves to two oil companies for bribes. So this version of the story, the 1920s version of the story, ties the corruption of American politics very much to these oil and land dynamics. What do you think this story looks like if you don't play it back but play it forward? So there's hints that possibly some kind of alternative way of extracting energy is going to be found in the shale revolution. There's a sense that America, well, it certainly is no longer self-sufficient in the 1970s and has to look overseas. Between the end of Dallas and now, the thing that happens is the actual shale revolution and the reversing of those dynamics so that America is now, in some sense, self-sufficient in fossil fuel energy production. But you still have all of those forces at work. So you still have, obviously, Wall Street funding this. You still have questions of land. There's a huge, really matters where shale drilling happens and whose land it is and the people who live there and the people who own it. You have people making fortunes out of it. You have the role of the state, both the administrative state and the legislature, elected officials, and in the background, much more loudly than in Dallas. But it's there in Dallas all the way through, the drumbeat of deep scepticism about what this is doing to the environment and the possibility that America is embarked on a path that is at some fundamental level unsustainable. 
So if there was a, it's not an easy question to answer because Dallas is so of its time, but if there was a contemporary version of this, where do you see the different power dynamics? Who's up, who's down? Well, one, I'm not sure this really answers your question, but it is interesting that when the shell boom started, that the television company did reinvent Dallas with the younger generation and some of the older actors. So until his death, Larry Hagman reappeared as J.R., I haven't watched any of this, so I could be getting it wrong. But as I understand that, Bobby Ewing's character certainly returned, as did Sue Elling's character. But Shale is central to that, as I understand. And interestingly, in that narrative, the Bobby Ewing is still trying to stop drilling on South Fork. That idea that even in these new times where the need for oil is, in some sense, from America's point of view, even more urgent you know, than it was in the, the 1970s, that there is somebody still trying to hold on to something that draws a line as to what the costs of extraction and an extraction-based way of life are. I mean, I think now we would see even more emphasis than there was on the environmental side of it. But I think what is interesting is, is that it really is there in Dallas. I mean, the biggest crisis in Jock and Miss Ellie's marriage comes when Jock is involved in property development on a swamp in Texas and Miss Ellie uh, is involved in basically an environmental movement to try to stop that um, happening. And her son says to her at one point something like, you could give your marriage up for a for swamp. The idea that there's something that's inherently destructive to an oil-based way of life and that this goes beyond the land of South Fork itself, that actually something has both to be sacrificed, but also that there's a kind of hopelessness to it in the end, or that it's going to run out of time. If we go back to something you said earlier about the soap opera aspects of it around birth in particular, I think that it's no accident that the the two daughters-in-law for a long time through the, the show have fertility problems. I don't think that that is just a soap opera aspect, that when the show starts, there is no air, as if to say that this way of life can't actually sustain itself, that it's that it's coming to an end. And the period that Dallas was being made coincides with the shift in environmental politics. So it starts in the age where it's still in the aftermath of Silent Spring, which initiates so Rachel Carson's Silent Spring from the early 1960s, where anxieties about the environment are to do with destruction of the natural world, pesticides there, but then moving on to oil and the destruction of the land, essentially, through the 1980s, which is the beginning of the shift to being the anxiety being about climate change. Does any of that feed through? So Dallas, to start with, when Cliff Barnes is an environmental campaigner, it's in a kind of Rachel Carson spirit. It's kind of this... This way of life, this is destroying the natural order of things. Is there any hint of the other deeper, more existential anxiety that this is unsustainable because actually it's not just destroying the land, it's destroying the atmosphere? I don't think there's any sense of it destroying the atmosphere. I think that there is a sense of it as inherently finite and that the crises of the oil producers and the destruction that it's causing this family in particular, and in some sense, fundamentally, the marriages, that the cycles of hope crashing, redemption are getting shorter and shorter. And there's one moment, like, very early on, that really hit me when I went and watched some of those episodes again, where this character who's only been introduced for a one-off episode, suddenly in the middle of the dinner time, I think his conversation says, it's like Will Durant said, civilization exists by geological consent subject to change without notice. That's not very Sophie. Is it's it? not. <laughs> it's a great line. Yeah. And it's just put there in the middle of this episode by this slightly random character whose his own life has, you know, he's, he's ridden high and he's crashed. And that sense of the contingency of it all. And in some sense, I think that then JR is sort of setting himself up against these contingencies. He's saying, look, I can still control 
the world. In my hands, it won't turn out like that. There's another moment that I really like where Bobby is trying to, his brother is is trying to get Ewing Oil to go into solar power. And it doesn't work out, notably. <laughs> but at the moment, he he's trying to persuade JR that they should go down the road of the solar power rather than oil. And he says, the world's running out of oil, JR. And JR says, the world's been running out of oil ever since the first oil wells being drilled. And that it's just oil men can completely just keep coming up with solutions. But that isn't the story that Dallas tells because, as I say, by the middle of the 1980s, at the point when Texas is in a, a, a very bad way, uh, economically, savings and loan crisis comes in into this, then Ewing Oil is destroyed. So shale changes this dynamic, right? So in a way, does shale show that JR was right? I mean, not, everything is finite and these things go through cycles. And at some point, the people who are saying end of oil will be right because nothing is infinite. But relative to the 70s, 80s, the American fossil fuel industry did reinvent itself. And it wasn't solar. Yeah, that would be, it's entirely dependent, I think, on the financial crash and the monetary environment that came out of the crash. I think if you... if you The, look, the 2008 crash. Yeah, yeah, if you look at the final note that Dallas strikes, which is the very last episode of the original series. But if you look at how the story that they were telling ends, it ends in a episode in which JR is alone in a very dark South Fork. Nobody else is there. The place is empty. And in some sense is in certainly in sort of moral ruin, spiritual ruin or whatever. We don't see the land because almost all this episode happens um at night and JR is like wandering around um, drunk with his father's gun and a It's a Wonderful Life kind of character comes and shows him what would have happened if he hadn't lived. And obviously JR does some terrible things, but what would have happened in the telling of the story that if JR hadn't lived is that his father would uh, have killed himself because another brother who is born rather than the ones who actually um, we see was incapable of running Ewing oil. Miss Ellie follows him to an early grave. Bobby is living a a dissolute life. South Fork has been uh, turned into a housing development. And, so, doesn't, and doesn't Cliff Barnes come out on top? Yeah, Cliff Barnes is about to become president of the United exactly, States. That's, <laughs> so that's, a bit, that's a bit of a weird thing. I don't quite know what they're doing with that story, except to increase um, JR's torture, I suppose. And then it appears that he turns his gun on himself. So even though... So I take that as sort of saying that JR was necessary, f- even to keep the show on the road for s- some time. But in the end, it still ends in the same place in that Ewing will destroys JR necessary as he was, as firmly as it destroys everybody else. It's probably worth saying for people who come to it, you mentioned he's drinking a lot at the end. There's an awful lot of drinking in this. And it's a world in which JR tries to manipulate and destroy the Barneses by playing on Digger Barnes' alcoholism. But you kind of think, you know, if JR's not an alcoholic, what it takes to kind of go over the edge, because everybody is constantly drinking. I want to ask you about two final things. So one, you might think this is too crass, but when I was watching it, I really was struck by the way in which JR as a character is quite Donald Trumpian. So, uh, you know, Trump's story is a family dynamic. It's a fraternal story. In his case, his brother did drink himself to death. It's for the love of the father. There's all that going on. But the way that JR does power politics, both in the oil industry sense, but in the wider sense as well, trying to manipulate electoral politics and, and ultimately Washington politics, he has no compunction about lying, including to his parents, right? So in the episode that we're talking about, he just denies that he's mortgaged South Fork until they, they see the deeds. He's a belittler. So his, his sort of modus operandi is to insult people. That's what he thinks power politics is. He's a liar and a belittler. But he's also remarkably shrewd in how he uses almost his own character flaws to get his way. He often comes across as like a child, particularly when he's caught out. He has this sort of sheepish look. And yet there's a strange kind of self-awareness about how he can use his own moral weaknesses to his advantage. And it is deeply ironic that Cliff Barnes becomes president in the fantasy version at the end, because in the history of America, I mean, this is putting it too bluntly, J.R. becomes president. 
because Donald Trump, I mean, a version of that kind of character. Also, he's completely in hock to finance Wall Street. You know, he's he's not a great businessman. He's constantly overreaching. The finances are incredibly shaky, as they are in the case. And he thinks you can lie your way out of even financial difficulties. Am I reading too much? I no. Mean, I mean, I don't want to say it's prophetic, but... There's something Trumpish about JR. I, I, I see exactly what you mean. I, I don't think I would have quite put it like that. But I think that there is a line, or I would put someone in between. I think there's a line that runs from JR as the kind of character that he is, which is really a quite charismatic anti-hero through Tony Soprano. And then from Tony Soprano into Donald Trump. I always thought that it was... There was something about the way in which Tony Soprano was seen as someone who people could empathise with or like, despite him doing these absolutely appalling things. And that there was a line that ran from that to their ability to embrace, or some people's anyway, obviously ability to embrace Trump, not least that sort of sense of physical violence. And like, treating women appalling. Yeah, I think the thing about J.R., which in a way maybe has got something of one side of Trump in him, is that for all his appalling behaviour, and it is at times incredibly destructive, particularly of his family um, members, he sees things more clearly than any of the other characters about quite a lot of things. So there's a quite a long sort of section of middle Dallas where you have family members basically one after another saying something like I hate to admit it but JR's right about something because he goes for people's fundamental weaknesses in the same way in which Trump basically destroyed Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio remember the little Marco yeah and Trump um, destroyed the Bushes who were comment, the fake yeah, Texan oil family yeah right? it is is that JR does that but he does that by saying things that are basically true saying the things out loud that other people that other people don't want to i think that he's a more self-disciplined character than trump is that's maybe the point in which i would sort of pull back i think i think he's less impulsive but it is interesting that you didn't say it goes from jr to george w bush to donald trump i mean as it were you have to bypass that whole i mean there was you know a, a texan dynasty that dominated republican politics yeah, and that's obviously to I why mean, a fake text why why, why wouldn't why I wouldn't put George W. Bush into it is is partly goes back to this religious question because I think the way in which George W. Bush comes as a Texan politician is bound up with the religious right and, and him being reborn, giving yeah. up the booze, all of yeah. that. He's the anti. And that, that's not that's not who Jr. is at all. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about, just to take one step away from Dallas, but it is, and you've written about this, it's an oil fiction. And there is a kind of genre of oil fictions, fascinating stories that use oil as the backdrop or sometimes at the centre of stories about human dynamics, but also politics and everything else as well. So last week, I was talking to Ian McEwan about Italo Calvino. And you've written about a very short, short story by Calvino called The Petrol Pump, which I've also just read, thanks to you. It's weird and fascinating and creepy and profoundly sexist. It's from the 1970s. But it touched on something that I think is there in Dallas and is in a lot of these oil fictions, which is there's a kind of weird form of time when it comes to oil, that it's both incredibly long. I mean, oil and Calvino writes about this. Oil has been there forever. You know, it's it's there baked into the earth. And we're talking about a, a story that completely transcends the human story. And at the same time, what oil does to the human experience is incredibly volatile and short. And the Calvino story is partly about the thought of filling up his car and when is the oil going to run out? Literally, when's the day when he's going to pull on the pump and nothing comes out because we've used it up? Am I right? Is there a kind of oil time which makes these stories so fascinating? It's so long and it's so contingent and volatile and the world of oil is that world of the long term and the short term colliding. And Dallas is a bit like that. I, I think that Dallas is absolutely like that. And in this respect, it, it's in that tradition that begins with Upton Sinclair's novel. It has a more optimistic take in the film Giant that was James Dean's last film. I think that what Calvino is trying to do in this 
story is have his character experience all oil time simultaneously. In four pages, it should yeah. be said. <laughs> From the, the present moment when he realises, or the story starts when he realises that he should already have filled his car up and he worries that it's too late. And Which is whole, a very 1970s yeah. anxiety. And indeed, there's a whole, I mean, I think Time magazine had Isaac Asimov write a story imagining what the world would be like when it ran out of fuel. Um, the basic, and this is, I think, 1978 or 1979, and the basic premise of it is is that, well, we could avoid this future. We could have, sorry, avoided this future that I'm about to describe, but we didn't start soon enough. So there's that sense again of it like being too late. What Calvino's character does, though, he starts from that thought of the present and then he stretches it all the way back into the past, you know, millions and millions of years ago when oil was being formed. And then he stretches it all the way into the future where he imagines human extinction and the collapse of all human life, all human life then decaying over millions and millions of years into oil again and then not knowing who would be the beneficiary of it as we have been of what happened millions and millions and millions of years ago. And he also has this bit where he tries to then to see everything that's happening in present time that makes oil possible, everything that's happened in the past and possibly the future all in the same bit. And I think it fits with what we've been talking about. He writes, money in the subterranean world are family and they go back a long way. Their relationship unfolds in one cataclysm after another sometimes desperately slow, sometimes quite sudden. As I fill my tank at the self-service station, a bubble of gas swells up in a black lake buried beneath the Persian Gulf, and Amir slightly raises hands hidden in white sleeves and folds them on his chest. In a skyscraper, an Exxon computer is crunching numbers. Far out to sea, a cargo fleet gets the order to change course. I rummage in my pockets, the puny power of paper money evaporates. And that, in a way, I mean, this is contemporary with Dallas, and you can feel that in Dallas too. Absolutely, yeah. And and we, in some sense, I think, the reason why these stories have such power at the moment is, is because we are living at a time where we understand the urgency of leaving the age of oil behind. We understand the deep difficulty also of doing so and in that moment it does seem possible in, to get to the point of trying to see it all simultaneously it almost seems necessary to see it all simultaneously please follow us on twitter at ppf ideas where you'll find links to all of the things that we've been discussing including helen's piece about oil fiction it's definitely worth reading next week on past present future i'm going to be talking to catcher hoyer and Leah ippy about what life was really like behind the Iron Curtain. To make sure you get that episode and past, present, future every week, do please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join us next time. My name is David Runciman and this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.